Book One, Chapter One of Unleavened Bread. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Matt Perard. Unleavened Bread by Robert Grant. Chapter One. Babcock and Selma White were among the last of the wedding guests to take their departure. It was a brilliant September night with a touch of autumn vigor in the atmosphere, which had not been without its effect on the company, who had driven off in gay spirits, most of them in hay-carts or other vehicles capable of carrying a party. Their songs and laughter floated back along the winding country road. Selma, comfortable in her wraps and well tucked about with a rug, leaned back contentedly in the chaise, after the good-byes had been said, to enjoy the glamour of the full moon. They were seven miles from home, and she was in no hurry to get there. Neither festivities nor the undisguised devotion of a city young man were common in her life. Consideration she had been used to from a child, and she knew herself to be tacitly acknowledged the smartest girl in Westfield. But perhaps, for that very reason, she had held aloof from manhood until now. At least no youth in her neighborhood had ever impressed her as her equal. Neither did Babcock so impress her, but he was different from the rest. He was not shy and unexpressive. He was buoyant and self-reliant, and yet he seemed to appreciate her quality none the less. They had met about a dozen times, and on the last six of these occasions, he had come from Benham, ten miles to her uncle's farm, obviously to visit her. The last two times her Aunt Farley had made him spend the night, and it had been arranged that he would drive her in the Farley chaise to Clara Morse's wedding. A seven-mile drive is apt to promote or kill the germs of intimacy, and on the way over she had been conscious of enjoying herself. Scrutiny of Clara's choice had been to the advantage of her own cavalier. The bridegroom had seemed to her what her Aunt Farley would call a mouse-in-the-cheese young man, whereas Babcock had been the life of the affair. She had been teaching now in Wilton for more than a year, when, shortly after her father's death, she had obtained the position of schoolteacher. It seemed to her that, at last, the opportunity had come to display her capabilities, and at the same time to fulfill her aspirations. But the task of grounding a class of small children in the rudiments of simple knowledge had already begun to pall and to seem unsatisfying. Was she to spend her life in this? And if not, the next step, unless it were marriage, was not obvious. Not that she mistrusted her ability to shine in any educational capacity, but neither Wilton nor the neighboring Westfield offered better, and she was conscious of a lack of influential friends in the greater world, which was embodied for her in Benham. Benham was a western city of these United States, with an eastern exposure, a growing, bustling city, according to rumor, with an eager population restless with new ideas and stimulating ambitions. So, at least, Selma thought of it, and though Boston and New York and a few other places were accepted by her as authoritative, she accepted them, as she accepted Shakespeare, 
as a matter of course, and so far removed from her immediate outlook as almost not to count. But Benham, with its 75,000 inhabitants and independent ways, was a fascinating possibility. Once established there, the world seemed within her grasp, including Boston. Might it not be that Benham, in that it was newer, was nearer to truth and more truly American than that famous city? She was not prepared to believe this an absurdity. At least the mental atmosphere of Westfield, and even of the somewhat less solemn Wilton, suggested this apotheosis of the adjacent city to be reasonable. Westfield had stood for Selma as a society of serious, though simple, souls, since she could first remember, and had been one of them. Not that she arrogated to her small native town any unusual qualities of soul or mind in distinction from most other American communities, but she regarded it as inferior in point of view to none, and typical of the best national characteristics. She had probably never put into words the reason of her confidence, but her daily consciousness was permeated with them. To be an American meant to be more keenly alive to the responsibility of life than any other citizen of civilization, and to be an American woman meant to be something finer, cleverer, stronger, and purer than any other daughter of Eve. Under the agreeable but sobering influence of this faith, she had grown to womanhood, and the heroic deeds of the Civil War had served to intensify a belief the truth of which she had never heard question. Her mission in life had promptly been recognized by her as the development of her soul among individual lines, but until the necessity for a choice had risen, she had been content to contemplate a little longer. Now the world was before her, for she was twenty-three and singularly free from ties. Her mother had died when she was a child. Her father, the physician of the surrounding country, a man of engaging energy with an empirical education and a speculative habit of mind, had been the companion of her girlhood. During the last few years since his return from the war, an invalid from a wound, her care for him had left her time for little else. No more was Babcock in haste to reach home, and after the preliminary dash from the door into the glorious night, he suffered the farm horse to pursue its favorite gait, a deliberate jog. He knew the creature to be docile, and that he could bestow his attention on his companion without peril to her. His own pulses were bounding. He was conscious of having made the whirligig of time pass merrily for the company by his spirits and jolly quips, and that in her presence, and he was groping for an appropriate introduction to the avowal he had determined to make. He would never have a better opportunity than this, and it had been his preconceived intention to take advantage of it if all went well. All had gone well, and he was going to try. She had been kind coming over, and had seemed to listen with interest as he told her about himself and somehow he had felt less distant from her. He was not sure what she would say, for he realized that she was above him. That was one reason why he admired her so. She symbolized for him refinement, poetry, art, the things of the spirit, things from which 
in the same whirligig of time he had hitherto been cut off by the vicissitudes of the varnish business but the value of which he was not blind to how proud he would be of such a wife how he would strive and labor for her his heart was in his mouth and trembled on his lip as he thought of the possibility what a joy to be sitting side by side with her under the splendid moon he would speak and know his fate isn't it a lovely night murmured selma appreciatively there they go she added indicating the disappearance over the brow of a hill of the last of the line of vehicles of the rest of the party whose songs had come back fainter and fainter i don't care do you he snuggled toward her a very little i guess they won't think i'm lost she said with a low laugh. What do you suppose your folks would say if you were lost? I mean, if I were to run away with you and didn't bring you back? There was a nervous ring in the guffaw which concluded his question. My friends wouldn't miss me much. At least they'd soon get over the shock. But I might miss myself, Mr. Babcock. Selma was wondering why it was that she rather liked being alone with this man. Big enough, indeed, to play the monster, yet half schoolboy, but a man who had done well in his calling. He must be capable. He could give her a home in Benham, and it was plain that he loved her. I'll tell you something, he said eagerly, ignoring her suggestion. I'd like to run away with you and be married tonight, Selma. That's what I'd like, and I guess you won't, but it's the burning wish of my heart that you'd marry me sometime. I want you to be my wife. I'm a rough fellow alongside you, Selma, but I'd do well by you. I would. I'm able to look after you, and you shall have all you want. There's a nice little house building now in Benham. Say the word, and I'll buy it for us tomorrow. I'm crazy after you, Selma. The rain was dangling, and Babcock reached his left arm around the waist of his lady-love, he had now and again made the same demonstration with others jauntily but this was a different matter she was not to be treated like other women she was a goddess to him even in his ardor and he reached gingerly selma did not wholly withdraw from the spread of his trembling arm though this was the first man who had ever ventured to lay a finger on her i'd have to give up my school she said they could get another teacher could they not one like you you see i'm clumsy but i'm crazy for you selma emboldened by the obvious feebleness of her opposition he broadened his clutch and drew her toward him say you will sweetheart this time she pulled herself free and sat up in the chaise would you let me do things she asked after a moment two things faltered babcock what could she mean? She had told him on the way over that her mother had chosen her name from a theatrical playbill, and it passed through his unsophisticated brain that she might be thinking of the stage. Yes, do something worth while. Be somebody. I've had the idea I could, if I ever got the chance. Her hands were folded in her lap. There was a rapt expression on her thin, nervous face, and a glitter in her keen eyes which were looking straight at the moon, as though they would outstare it in brilliancy. 
You shall be anything you like if you'll only marry me. What is it you're wishing to be? I don't know exactly. It isn't anything as special yet. It's the whole thing. I thought I might find it in my school, but the experience so far hasn't been satisfying. Troublesome little brats. No, I dare say the fault's in me. If I went to Benham to live, it would be different. Benham must be interesting, inspiring. There's plenty of go there. You'd like it, and people would think lots of you. I tried to make them. She turned and looked at him judiciously, but with a softened expression. Her profile, in her exalted mood, had suggested a beautiful but worried archangel. Her full face seemed less this, and wore much of the seductive embarrassment of sex. To Babcock, she seemed the most entrancing being he had ever seen. Would you really like to have me come? He gave a hoarse ejaculation, and, encircling her eagerly with his strong grasp, pressed his lips upon her cheek. Selma, darling, angel, I'm the happiest man alive. You mustn't do that, yet, she said protestingly. Yes, I must. I'm yours, and you're mine. Mine. Aren't you, sweetheart? There's no harm in a kiss. She had to admit to herself that it was not very unpleasant, after all, to be held in the embrace of a sturdy lover, though she had never intended that their relations should reach the stage of familiarity so promptly. She had known, of course, that girls were to look for endearments from those whom they promised to marry, but her person had hitherto been so sacred to man and to herself that it was difficult not to shrink a little from what was taking place. This, then, was love, and love was, of course, the sweetest thing in the world. That was one of the truths which she had accepted, as she had accepted the beauty of Shakespeare, as something not to be disputed, yet remote. He was a big, affectionate fellow, and she must make up her mind to kiss him. So she turned her face toward him, and their lips met eagerly, forestalling the little peck which she had intended. She let her head fall back at his pressure onto his shoulder, and gazed up at the moon. "'Are you happy, Selma?' he asked, giving her a fond, firm squeeze. "'Yes, Louis.' She could feel his frame throb with joy at the situation as she uttered his name. "'We'll be married right away. That's if you're willing.' My business is going first-rate, and if it keeps growing for the next year, as it has for the past two, you'll be rich presently. When shall it be, Selma? You're in dreadful haste. Well, I promise to give the selectmen notice tomorrow that they must find another teacher. Because the one they have now is going to become Mrs. Lewis J. Babcock. I'm the luckiest fellow, hooray, in creation. See here, he added, taking her hand. I guess a ring wouldn't look badly there. A real diamond, too. Pretty little fingers. She sighed gently, by way of response. It was comfortable nestling in the hollow of his shoulder, and a new delightful experience to be hectored with sweetness in this way. How round and bountiful the moon looked. She was tired of her present life. 
what was coming would be better. Her opportunity was at hand to show the world what she was made of. A real diamond, and large at that, he repeated, gazing down at her, and then, as though the faraway expression in her eyes suggested kinship with the unseen and the eternal, he said, admiringly but humbly, It must be grand to be clever like you, Selma. I'm no good at that. But if loving you will make up for it, I'll go far, little woman. What I know of, that I like, and— and if some day i can make you proud of me so much the better said selma proud of you you are an angel and you know it she closed her eyes and sighed again even the bright avenues of fame which her keen eyes had traversed through the golden moon paled before this tribute from the lips of real flesh and blood what woman can withstand the fascination of a lover's faith that she is an angel. If a man is fool enough to believe it, why undeceive him? And if he is so sure of it, may it even not be so? Selma was content to have it so, especially as the assertion did not jar with her own prepossessions, and thus they rode home in the summer night in the mutual contentment of a betrothal. End of section one.